Hello and welcome to another episode of our coffee podcast with Tim Wendelbow. Today I have a dear old good friend sitting next to me. We're in Bogota drinking coffee. His name is Alejandro Renjifo and he is an exporter of coffee and actually the person who introduced me to Colombia in 2007. That's right? That's correct. So Alejandro, tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from, what you do. Thank you, Tim. Um, I am a Colombian person that uh, started to work with coffee many years ago, initially with Colombian Coffee Federation and uh, as an economist. And then I went to uh, London to work with the International Coffee Organization in the days that we still had the coffee agreement. And then I opened up a cafe bar in London that still exists. It's called Cafe Brera. And uh, then I came back for a while to Colombia to work in, in the oil industry for five years. And then I went back to New York to introduce the Colombian specialty coffees to the U.S. market at the beginning of the 2000s. Uh, and that was uh, an interesting moment because uh, for Colombia, we have been very successful in creating the origin Colombia. And the uh, consumers had been evolving into uh, people that were more interested in what is the, the coffee is coming, where is the coffee coming from, uh, who is producing it. And so you could see regions uh, in Central America, like Guatemala, Antigua, and Costa Rica, Tarrazú, etc., that were this, uh, creating a differentiation by regions. And whereas the Colombians at that moment were, uh, had done something that, that was uh, different, that was they were talking about Supremos and Excelsos and uh, preparations. Before 1950s in Colombia, the regions, the natural regions existed. So you had regions like Medellin, Manizales, Armenia, Popayán, Armero, which were very, very small regions. And uh, the people actually delivered coffee by mule to the, those places. And those were the natural terroirs. Mm. When the Colombians decided in the 1950s that they were going to create the origin Colombia, they basically disregarded that very important uh, tradition of regions and decided that it was uh, by states, by departments. And uh, the budget was allocated by uh, production and by volume. So in the 1970s, Colombia switched from the beautiful typical trees with shade and uh, low density to a program of high density with caturra mm. and no shade. And that brought the production from about seven to eight million bags per year to 14. Uh, and that created, obviously, a concept of volume. Uh, Colombia, for many, many years, had been uh, very proud producers of very good coffee because there was a standard of production of dry, of, uh, of wet coffee uh, that was, or that is still is produced in the farm. Mm. And that tradition, uh, which is the most important asset of the Colombian coffee industry, uh, was uh, put to the stress test. When the production doubled, the capacity of drying didn't double. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the, um, the, uh, and also, uh, 
without having that capacity of drying beautiful coffees. So people were sort of starting cutting corners. When I left the International Coffee Organization in 1989, the price was between 115 cents per pound, the lower part, and 145 cents per pound. So more or less the same as it is today? Well, not exactly yes. today, but yes, historically. Exactly. So <coughs> 35 years ago, the price was in real terms as it is today. Yeah. From that moment until last year, the price had been going down for 30 years. Yeah. So at the beginning of last year, the price was 115, which is in terms of real money, you know, 50% less. Yeah. So that situation of uh, income disparity created the conditions for cutting corners and cutting corners and that has been the history of the Colombian coffee recently. We started with a concept, an idea that was absolutely fantastic and still is fantastic that is to produce a beautiful coffee for export to be very proud because you can actually produce it in the farm, integrate it, the process of production and processing and differently from what Central American countries do with they deliver cherries to a centralized mm. meal mm. and um, and then someone does the, the processing and the value added is in the processing many times. So let's just uh, track back a little bit so for those of you who don't know much about Colombia it's a huge country it's I think the third largest coffee producers in the world now mm -hmm. and uh, I went to Colombia on a trip with the local coffee federation here in 2011 and then I learned that they ha Colombia has over 550,000 farmers and the average size of the farm is about 2 hectares. So, so we're talking smallholder farmers here. But most of them, or I would say almost every single one of them, have a wet mill where they process their own coffee and most of them also are drying their own coffee. Some people are selling it wet but uh, most of them are drying the coffee. Mm. Well, this is exactly uh, the the thing that that made Colombia different from other guys. That is, uh, smallholders in very isolated places in mountains that were able to produce this fantastic coffee. Yeah. But given the evolution of volume and the evolution of low prices or, or income, so the coffee producers have been switching from integrated, beautiful production towards selling wet coffee yeah. and then uh, that is a disaster, a big disaster for Colombian coffee because what we call UGQ in Huila for instance, uh, about half of the coffee is being processed by intermediaries that buy the wet coffee that is soaking wet. Yeah. Uh, they put it in, in, a, in, a, in the floor in somewhere in, in a very dirty place, <laughs> yeah. you know, horrendous. By the roads or? <laughs> by the roads and, uh, or, or in, you know, in moisty humid places and then they dry it at 60 degrees Celsius for two days yeah. and then voila you have the UGQ which is usual good quality. Yeah. The Colombians have been very uh, smart about creating fine num names and numbers and, and names for the coffee so you have the UGQ which is the lowest exportable quality which is the worst coffee you can have and that is called the usual good quality. Then you have the Excelso which is you know a as its name says, you know, beautiful, and that basically is, it is a 15 screen preparation, and then you have the Supremo, which is 16 and 17 and 18 screens, and of course, you know, the Supremo and the Excelsos and the UGQs are preparations by 
size of the yeah. bean. Doesn't have anything to do with terroir or nothing to do with um, the quality of the coffee. Mm. So you can have beautiful uh, Supremos, but the, that doesn't really mean that you know anything about who produced the coffee and the traceability towards the region or the, or the you, you more or less know where it's coming from, but you don't know the grower. Yeah. You need more or less four uh, to one, four of UGQ to one of Supremo. So when you start skimming out the bigger beans, basically you are separating by size. And yeah. that, I, I think that, that that strategy in the 80s was successful, but in the 90s people wanted to know more about who was producing the coffees. And so the pattern of the Central Americans of actually having regions and all that uh, was the, the, the model that I thought it was very important. And the FNC gave me the opportunity to introduce that concept in 2000. Uh, and the concept that we introduced with the FNC uh, and that, that became very important, I think it is very important today, is the coffee relationship partnerships. Yeah. Uh, when I created that, we launched it in 2001 in Miami, where actually you were uh, I was competing, yes. Competing. Uh, and uh, uh, we were uh, in the same place at the same time. Uh, and you were busy you with your competition. I was busy introducing the Coffee Relationship Partnerships program. About the same time, a couple of excellence started as well? From memory. About I think, that. I think about it started that. around uh, thousand, 2000. In that moment, what the, was the flavor of the month was the certifications. Yes. So you had certification for bird friendly, certifications for uh, rainforest, certification for fair, tra uh, fair, fair, fair trade, all sorts of certifications, but there was no one certification for quality no. and no one certification for people. Mm. You know, so I remember when I was in, in New York in the office of the Colombian Coffee Federation that uh, one of the certification companies or organizations that arrived there to ask the agency to support that concept. I was very negative about that. Uh, I think it was obviously mistaken. It was Rainforest Alliance and I basically was against that because I was opposed to the concept of uh, inspectors from the developed country to come to <laughs> inspect in Colombia if we were doing the, the things that were supposed to be done. Um, and the reason why I was opposed to that is because it's, it, it is a, a little bit of the colonialist yes. mentality that still today. Yeah. And that's something that we should start talking about. Yeah. You know, the consumers believe that you know, they are, are the ones that have the capacity to determine what is good and what is bad and what is the price and what is not the price and if these guys are correct or not correct. And that has to change mm. because that's a colonial mentality that we have to change. Um, so uh, the introduction of the coffee relationship partnerships was based on two things. One, if you really like coffee and you really appreciate quality, then you have to pay for it. Mm. And then you have to forget about the New York Sea because the New York City is basically pricing at the margin and the margin on the lower parts of the margin. So New York City is the kind yeah. of stock market price for the, the, the stock markets. The yeah. stock market is basically one contract of coffee is 250, 250 bags of coffee and you basically have to del deliver that coffee under very specific uh, uh, conditions that are no, nothing to do with origin. It has to be from Colombia, but it doesn't have to be from Huila or, or Santander or anywhere. Yeah. So, and, uh, so this is how the kind of big, bigger roaster would buy coffee to it, protect themselves from... That's exactly, what, the, that's exactly what it is. You, yeah. you can hedge coffee, you can buy coffees in the future. 
And so you, you say, I want to buy 100 contracts of coffee for next year, and then someone will sell them to you. It's, yeah. a, it's a financial hedging uh, system. Yeah. But for a specialty coffee, that does not work, because specialty basically is limited to what a person can produce in a certain point in time. And we have now to add the conditions of climate change. Yeah. And so you don't know now with certainty that the production of coffee is coming to what is happening. The seasons in Colombia have changed, changed enormously. When I started in coffee um, in the 80s, of the altitude in which coffee was planted was a, between 1,400 and 1,600. Yeah. Quite low. Yes. The, well, that was the shade coffee, and you know, it was that was the typical coffees of the of the day. But the yes, the the um, altitude of the coffee uh, was related to the, the climate and the shade and the low density. And as the climate has gone up, the, the increase of climate or the climate and, and the, the temperature has gone up in the earth. Uh, the Colombian coffee. Uh, altitude has gone up. Yeah. As now you consider 1,400 um, uh, meters to to be on the lower margin. Yeah, definitely. And and, um, and so so that is part of the the situation. But we have been seeing in Colombia. Mm. But it's interesting to that you say that they changed from typical and shade grown to growing in full sun, high density, planting mainly caturra. Yeah. And uh, right about uh, that time, they also started getting a lot of leaf rust. The leaf rust uh, came, came in the eighties. Did it? Came in in uh, in the in the eighty one was the, the moment when the the Barilla Colombia was released and eighty two arrived. Yeah. And um, one of the things that, that that really is happening here is that uh, the risk of the rust. Uh, to a coffee grower that is a smallholder is immense. Yeah. You know, if, if you are a smallholder and you live out of production of coffee, you basically produce between 15 and 25 hect bags per hectare. And if you have two hectares, well, you do the calculations, your income is $2,000 to $3,000 a year. Yeah. If you lose 40% of that income, then you are in real hardship. And in the worst case, you lose everything. And, and indeed, indeed. <laughs> and, and so, so the reality of the rust-resistant varietals in Colombia, uh, it is that uh, the Colombia variety and the Castillo um, have been uh, the backbone of our industry. And mm. at the beginning, they were quite difficult to understand because people were insisting that Caturra was the, the thing to have. But um, you know, with time, uh, you have seen the evolution of first understanding how to work with those varietals. But also you have beautiful Colombian varietals. Yes. Now people are asking me, do you have Colombia variety? Yeah. Yellow Colombia. And yeah. uh, I think Atamala is actually the better tasting one out of the three. But mm. Colombia. So And also the the Varia Colombia, mm. well, well, you know, it, it was um, uh, very important to, to secure the income of, of the production of the producers that were exposed to rust. And later came the Castillo. And as you know, Castillo um, uh, in Colombia, the, the the concept of uh, protection against rust is that they created multi-line, mm -hmm. multi-line genetically, multi-line uh, resistance. So they are they, they identified 32 lines that were resistant to certain parts of the rust uh, fungus, 
and then you plant them in lines, one next to the other. So line one, line two, like 32, and then you harvest them across. Yeah. So when you ha harvest across uh, these uh, seeds, you have one thirty-tooth of each one of the lines. Yeah. And then therefore, rust is not that, the, when you say rust resistant, it's not that it's not going to get rust, it's that the rust is not going to propagate. Yeah. So you may have pockets of rust, but those are limited to certain places. And yeah. that's what you see in so, so many places in Colombia. You have a beautiful coffee plantation and centrally then in then a small spot with rust, but yeah. that is contained. Don't panic. <laughs> so the Castillo, the Castillo initially was developed for seven regions, and then you have the Castillo Tambo, the Castillo Naranjal, the Castillo, um, well, I forget the other ones. Uh, Pueblo Velo, Rizaralda, is it? Pueblo Nuevo, sí. And um, those, those, there was one for the north, when central part of Antioquia, and then they have for uh, Tolima. Uh, and Huila, and then you have the coffee for Valle del Cauca and uh, Santander. And those, those um, Castillos initially uh, were developed uh, by the Ceni Cafe uh, research station uh, to be resistant and also to, to have certain characteristics on the profile. Mm. And one of the characteristics that the Castillo had was that it was very fixed to the to the branch so the the tree when katura when you had a, a ripe katura bean and if it rains it falls to the ground yeah and that's one of the focuses of rust of uh, brocas Broca, of broca. which is a small coffee berry bar. yes coffee yes. berry bar. so another big pest but the castillo don't do that so initially because all that uh, education that the colombians had had for many years or decades of you know you have to pick the coffee at the right time and the color is this and those that when the coffee uh, when the castillo was introduced the growers were used to pick coffees at that point mm. when it was red mm. and uh, then uh, uh, nespresso actually in the and uh, the fnc uh, research uh, determined at one point in the, that they were going to do an experiment in what's called the late harvest and the late harvest when they introduced that created all sorts of, you know, complaints by the scientists and the uh, research and the extensionists. They say, how come we have been spending, you know, 50 years saying that you have to pick the coffee red and now you're asking me to pick the coffee purple? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so the concept was that the, the adaptation to the variety was important. Yeah. And once they did that, the profile of the Castillo appeared. And that was a big surprise because there are some beautiful castillos. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And we did the same thing at Tamana actually. In the beginning, they harvested it red. Now they're picking it purple, and the coffee is tasting much yes. better. So it is. A, it is a, um, the situation of of the the evolution the, of the uh, broca and the rust in Colombia has been, you know, quite complicated everywhere. Mm. Happily, we have been uh, with the, the varietals that are rust resistant. But what's interesting, I think, with Colombia, because you have a very limited um, amount of cultivars or varieties, mm -hmm. and that's not uncommon, it's quite common in each country, but each country has their kind of own <laughs> cultivars. But uh, you can clearly uh, taste differences from region to region. Yep. And uh, when I came here in 2007, I, I remember, you know, I was introduced to like Huila coffee tastes like this, Nariño coffee tastes like this. 
but you know within Wila there's so many different microclimates yeah. driving you know, just just one hour from Tamala to another farm they're in a complete different cycle of harvests mm. uh, and you know everything is different exactly and that is that is why it's so important the the concept that we have is we have four point purchasing points one in Tarki which is actually slightly south of Finca Tamara and Xavernelas Minas and that is the inflection point where the to the south of Tarki the main season occurs in the second semester mm. to the north of Tarki towards Finca Tamara occurs during the first semester uh, and then you have San Agustin which is second semester then you have Acevedo which is a very interesting landscape because it's not that high but it's against the Amazonas jungle mm. and so uh, on the other side of the mountain, as they say, is the, the jungle. And so in the evening, the cloud comes very cold. So when there is frost in Brazil or very cold temperatures in Brazil, you can feel it in Acevedo. It's, a oh, really? it's, it's very cold. Yes. Ah. And, and the other place is in Caetania, in Tolima, uh, which is also a very interesting place. So just to dumb it down a little bit, because not all of our listeners have been to Colombia and understand everything. So um, basically, you export coffee and you have several locations uh, where you buy coffees from farmers. So the farmer, that's one of the things that I found so fascinating in Colombia, like every single small town in the coffee areas, they have several different purchasing points where the farmer can go and sell their coffee. Mm -hmm. And on the outside of the door of those purchasing points, normally it says the name of the company and also the prices they pay yes. that particular day. Yes. So what kind of uh, what differentiates you from other, except for the quality? Like uh, you pay higher prices. Uh, I know that you are very passionate about connecting people uh, and trying to make relationships. Uh, but uh, wh why do you do that? <laughs> because uh, you know the the only solution in 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 this moment in coffee for me is quality. And the only solution to make a transformative industry to have uh, producers live hard lives. They live in the mountains, uh, it's a very sort of fundamental, uh, practical life. They, they have to sometimes drive long hours to get to the purchasing point. So uh, the price is basically uh, set by the international markets, and it has been, as we discussed earlier on, depressed. So, uh, the specialty coffee, when it started uh, um, many years ago, offered the change that producers were going to get a better deal. Well, for that better deal, you have to have commitment, yeah. and that's something that we, uh, I believe, that is crucial part for everyone: commitment from the grower and commitment from the buyer. I see that that's also one of the issues that we have uh, at this moment and for many years is that the commitment is more a talking point than a real, actually, commitment. I agree. <laughs> and and uh, we, so we've kind of created an illusion of uh, specialty coffee being the solution for everyone, but it doesn't work without commitment. The, I stopped going to, to the specialty coffee uh, meetings um, and the SEA meetings because for the last 30 years they have, the topic has been sustainability. 
and uh, well, I can tell you, sustainability has gone down the drain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there are improvements, of course there are improvements, but sustainability, we are not sustainable anymore. This industry is not sustainable in Colombia. Uh, the coffee growers are basically producing uh, coffee uh, that is every, every year is going up in the mountains, so we are taking out more uh, uh, forest. Uh, we are dependent on fertilizers. Uh, we are dependent on on a coffee market that does not pay enough to for your family to be well. So even I the low cost price, I would say. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I would be I would say that that uh, the, the solution for that, in fact, that is the solution today of the Colombian Federation with the new varietal called called Seni Cafe One, uh, and that basically is. Uh, they, they are saying to the growers, plant coffee at 7,000 trees per hectare, and then for the increase of productivity, you will, every four years, you will get one extra year in production. Mm. So if you produce at 7,000 trees, then uh, in three years, you will produce the total amount of, that you were going to produce in four years. That's extreme high density. Yeah, 7,000 trees is, is a tremendous yeah. density. But that is the, the situation that we are in because uh, the price is uh, low. At this moment it's not, but, uh, but uh, the price traditionally has been low. Yeah. So the solution is volume. Yeah, let's, let's, you know, multiply one by ten. Yeah. <laughs> and then that's, we get ten dollars instead of multiplying uh, five by, t by, by two. But there is another way, and uh, I think we have a very good example of that with Elias and Pinka Damala. Mm. We have been purchasing his coffee since 2012. And uh, I just was on the farm for two weeks and did actually make a small video just showing uh, our followers the changes that have been done on the farm since I first came. It was just a small house when I came with one dryer and now he has seven big dryers made of steel, you know, with drying beds. He has a new mill, he has a new cupping lab, he has new bedrooms for the workers, new mm. showers, new bathrooms, new kitchen. You know, a better car to work on the farm. Television. Television. <laughs> um, a lot of new varieties. You know, the farm is really progressing. And it wouldn't be able, he wouldn't be able to do that without the commitment that we have yeah. had together. And also because we have been paying, you know, a decent price for the coffee. So he, he was able to invest in the farm. How much you pay for the price for the coffee, you think? Uh, I think uh, last uh, harvest now was five dollars per pound for the kind of Colombia Colum coffees. Yeah, and I think I think we paid six six fifty for and the Bourbon. Yes, yeah. you have you have been paying between five and six fifty, and even time sometimes a little bit more, so some special lots. But uh, that that is about three times more than the rest of the people uh, that that normally talk about sustainability. So that is why the relationship that you have with Elias has been transformational, I believe, for both of you. Uh, for you, uh, allow you to, to become a coffee grower in Venezuela. Definitely. Uh, and to also, have also to learn you know, everyday life of a farm, because I've stayed there for many months. To have a partner that has the luxury of being able to work with you and to collaborate with you, because he is well paid. And if you don't have a, if just a, a, a sake of argument, if you, I, I bought a farm as well. Uh, after many years of talking, <laughs> more or less at the same point of view, I decided to buy a farm, and I associated with myself with a coffee grower that himself is a very good coffee grower. But uh, what we have been doing is that uh, that we don't have 
the, the same development that you have because my partner has been less uh, fortunate in his other side of his business mm. to have a, a champion. Mm. I am not buying all his coffees. I'm not uh, the person that buys all his coffees. He delivers coffees to me, but not all the coffees. And he delivers to other companies. So, so the important thing that you have done with Elias and Finca Tamara and Finkel Suero is that you have created a transformational relationship. And that is the thing that I believe that is very important in what you do. And I hope that, that uh, people that listen to this uh, and they have the capacity to buy coffee, uh, focus on that. Is You, know, you have to, to focus in, in the capacity of changing the life of a farmer to farmers and community, but do it, not just simply buy coffee in a coffee table and select the, the lot. I am at this moment a bit pissed <laughs> with the world. Always. <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, you know, the the prices are uh, about 212, $240, $250. I don't know what is the price today, but... So but about a dollar more than it has been for the last yes. 30 years. And that uh, increase in prices uh, with the pandemic and all these things have created difficulties for, for us in the industry. Uh, and I see a lot of my clients that are supposed to be very interested in, in buying the best coffees, um, concerned that uh, the, the demand is not going to be there, that you know they have difficulties. So there is a mixture between the dislodgement of the demand for the, the COVID and also that the prices seem to be high. So they, they say, well, you know, at this moment we cannot buy all the coffees from our partners in Colombia that we have been buying for many years. Uh, because, you know, we have to be careful. And uh, that to me is not really nice because I am not doing that. I continue to buy at the same level as I have been always buying. Mm. And what I do is I am a price taker. I take the price that is uh, published every day by the Economic Federation that growers know that. And on top of that, I have a margin that the growers know initially and that margin has been traditionally between 20 and 25 percent on top of that price. At this moment, for this season, is 10 percent. I brought it down, and I actually sent a letter to the growers saying that due to the pandemic, I was quite concerned that our equation, the other side of the equation, which is the consumer, is going to have hardship. Uh, in fact, uh, in last year when I sent that letter, 60% of the coffee, specialty coffee, so the coffee shops in, in the U.S. were closed. Mm. So when I said that to the, in a letter to the coffee growers, uh, I was criticized by all sides, including Sasha, my son, who said that, uh, well, we know, why are you doing this? Sending letters saying that you're going to bring down the price. Well, you know, there are two parts in this dance, is the consumer and the producer. Both, yeah. without those two, you cannot produce the magic. In, uh, as an economist, I can tell you, the value is created by the producer and by the consumer. The rest of us that are in the middle, you, me, the exporter, the importers, we are interchangeable if we do not add value. Yeah. So the key for me is add value, to add value to you, to add value to Elias, to add value to whoever. Um, I remember, uh, that sometimes the growers that have been working with us many years decided that you know there is always an exporter or a new importer that comes and says no 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 you know I can do better for you, and then they have said we are going to try this other person, and um, they change uh, the 
they, they say, okay, we're going to change, and I'm very happy for them to try. And happily, most of those come back. Yeah. One thing that I uh, really like, and uh, that you kind of said in a very f- few words yesterday, we, we visited your son, because he had a new sample roster that he wanted to show us. So we, late night, we went there to just see the sample roster. Uh, because he's also starting an export company. Yeah. And um, one of the things you told him as a father's advice, I guess, um, when we left was that, remember, it's not about numbers, it, it's about people. Mm. And coming from an economy background, mm. that's kind of a different point of view, I think, than most people have. Mm. Why is it so important for you that it's about people and not the numbers? Because, oh, I think that the consumption, the market economy that we live in, where happiness is through consumption, where happiness is achieved through money, uh, is not at the end of the day giving us the solution. We we are seeing the climate change, we are seeing the poverty increasing, even in the most rich countries. Like I live in the United States, and I in Portland, Oregon, where I live, there is a, a crisis now of people living in the street, mm. living in the street. Uh, a crisis of poverty, a, cl- a crisis of op- lack of opportunities, and why is that? Uh, when we, when I was working in international government organization, um, the economy uh, concept was, you know, let's do the globalization. You know, let's go and do this uh, because the markets will clear. That is the concept that economists have believed that the invisible hand will always be there and will in the end will be better. Mm. Well, that is not correct as an economist, I can tell you. When the globalization started, the first thing that happens is where is the lowest uh, chip per minute uh, labor that you can buy? So they went from, from the, the maquila, went from the United States, they, they didn't make the jeans in the United States, but they make them in Mexico or in Colombia. And then when the Colombians and the Mexicans were too expensive, they went to Vietnam or to Cambodia or to Laos and so on. And so now you see in, in China, all that is being produced in China because they, they, the labor cost is lower. Mm. And, and that consumption and that economy that creates the necessity to consume more and to consume more and to create the dependency of uh, the lowest production cost is not a solution that I will believe that is very enlightened. I think that, that uh, it is not seen persons. The crisis that we have of unemployment in developed countries, uh, it is in part because the work is being done in places where the uh, labor is cheaper. Mm. And uh, the crisis of migrations uh, to Europe and to the United States from countries in Central America, in South America, or in Africa and Asia, is because the opportunities there don't exist. Because uh, the uh, capitalist society has been very uh, not in balance. So there is accumulation in immense amounts in certain parts. In Colombia, the upper classes are hyper rich. Uh, the same in the United States and in, in, in general. And the rest of us, the the, the rest of the of the, of the population, does not have much opportunities. Mm. So if you don't see the persons. If you don't see the the other person, if you don't have the empathy for the other person, then you are in the situation where we are now. Mm. That is basically we are numbers, and uh, and and we are not uh, making 
uh, a sustainable uh, life. Economists will tell you, no, you know, the, the, the numbers show you wrong. You know, the expectancy of life has increased yes. uh, of the last hundred years uh, tremendously. We have controlled all the polio, all the sicknesses, all that. I can tell you, in the United States, this generation today is going to have a life expectancy that is shorter than the previous generation. This is something that proves that we are not in the right direction. Mm. When the life expectancy of the country that considers itself the richest country in the world is going down, it means that something is not working well. And that is the case that I want to make, is we need to be enlightened. We need to think on the other person. We need to see the other person. In coffee, we are, earlier on we are talking about, uh, at this moment is the moment of the growers. The growers don't give a damn if the coffee producers <laughs> are in, uh, the consumers are having hardship or the roasters are having hardship. And in three years' time will be the moment on when the producers will not think about the growers. Yeah. So it, it is not balance. It is not balance. So my concept in coffee is, and that's what I want to be, is to make a difference for both, for the consumer and for the producer, both are the capacity. They have the capacity to create the value I like, which is quality coffee, which is something that gives me pleasure because it involves a lot of people, involves walking in the mountains, involves many uh, aspects of life that I like. And hopefully what we do will make transformations to these persons. And I think that we have done it. We, certainly, I know that in the case of the relationship that you have with Elia Roa, uh, it is a transformational relationship. And you know, I have seen it from the beginning when Elias uh, invited us to, to his farm for the first time. It was a different farm. Yeah, yeah. He, and the opportunities he had at that moment were different. Now we see a, a different family, a different growers, a different uh, pickers. The whole thing has improved. And that is why I think that it's about people. Mm. But even so, like Elias is producing, I think, 300 bags per year, mm. and we're buying maybe half of it. Mm. Uh, but he's still struggling to sell the rest of his coffee for a fair price. Yes. Because, okay, now he can get a good price for it in the market, but uh, he actually spends more uh, labor producing that coffee, mm. uh, which costs more, and uh, the prices a lot of people are offering is not high enough. Yeah, and listen, you know, case, point, case in point, um, normally what we have done is Elias sends you all the, the samples, you cop them first, and you take uh, the, the coffee that you want to, to, to sell, and I am offering the rest of the coffees to people that have been very proud mm. to buy coffees from Elias. And uh, one of my clients uh, sent me a letter this day, say, listen, I want to buy between 20 and 30 bags from Elias, and the price would be the same as you pay, no problem. But I also want to buy 360 bags at a price that is basically impossible for me to, to achieve. Yeah. And uh, I say, listen, you know, this is not right because the price that you are offering for the large volume of coffee would not even be able for me to, it's less than what I pay the growers. So I will be cutting the, the price to the growers and I will be working for free. 
and that's not right. Mm. So it, uh, this happens like one month and I didn't pay much attention and one good day last like three weeks ago, Elias called me saying, hey, you are not selling my coffees. And they say, Elias, I am very happy to sell you coffees, but if the deal is that I have to pay, <laughs> pay, pay to sell it, pay to sell it <laughs> I won't do it. So, well, we, we, I have sent all the samples for the coffees for Elias, but he's right. Mm. Elias is not getting the same money that you get, that he gets from you, from other buyers. Uh, and that is uh, something that, that is obviously complicated for him because he has invested and reinvested and, and you can see it. And Elias is the one that is lucky enough to have Tim Vanderbilt behind as well. Uh, not everyone has that person like you being the advocate or being the promoter of those yeah. companies. But I think, you know, the, the good thing about Elias is that we kind of work as a team now and he, he's able to see the project long term now. Mm. Whereas before it was very short term because he needed money to pay the pickers the next week. But of course now he has a little buffer and he's able to think a little bit ahead, you know. So he understands that it takes time to build a project like this and mm. to get enough clients. Uh, but still I think it's hard and it just shows that when we say we need to pay more for quality, uh, <laughs> more is, you have to kind of know how much more because it's not about making him rich. He's not rich. He's just making it, you know, a fair amount of money for his coffee so that he can invest and be able to produce higher quality because the quality coffee is is developing. Yeah, but but it's not just simply able to, to pay him enough to, for, to make him to produce more good quality because that would be a very narrow definition of how much more you have to pay. Elia's daughters, one uh, is married to Diego Campos uh, and she's working as a barista and she's interested in becoming an, a, a person that is more than just simply a person that, that works in the farm. And uh, they have been doing that because they had had the opportunity to get a, a, a family that supports those dreams to, to improve mm. education-wise and travel-wise. And so that is something that, that allows them to do that. They have the capacity to improve their families. So when, when you say just simply, you know, Elias produces more money, you, know, you have to produce uh, more quality. You have to give them the capacity to have better opportunities. Mm. And better opportunities are linked, obviously, with better opportunities for good quality. And those are the ones that, that we need to get from Elias and from the buyers like yourself. You know? And you can't do it in just one purchase. No, you of course not. That's why, like, always when, uh, when uh, a lot of people ask me what do farmers want the most? Is it a higher price or whatever? And uh, at least the buyer or producers that I work with, they normally answer commitment first. And it is very important. And predictability. All right, it's been uh, over an hour, but uh, let's just, I want to ask you a last question. What, what do you hope will kind of change in the near future in uh, Colombian coffee? Do you have any kind of visions or? I do, I do. My vision for Colombian coffee is first, we have to get back into the old ways. We have to focus on what we are doing the best, which is beautiful washed coffee, dried in patios, slowly, selectively, selectively, and concentrating in preserving the link to the grower with the product and the region and the farm, and to make sure that these growers have the capacity 
to do that. And that requires to stop the processing plants of or drying plants of you know huge drying plants where they buy wet coffee and they dry it. Uh, that should be stopped. So my idea would be that if there is the, the Colombian Coffee Federation is going to have a investment buying coffee uh, with the coffee the National Coffee Fund, which is money from the government, they should buy those coffees only if they are uh, dried in patios. Of course, that would create a revolution <laughs> <laughs> if you say that the government is going to say, oh, we are going to stop buying coffee for half of the producers yeah. in Villa because we are going to only buy <laughs> coffee that is parchment uh, dried, uh, in parchment that has been dried in solar, solar ways. But um, that is something I have uh, that vision. Um, I know that there is a lot of people that, that uh, think differently, but for me is a relationship that is important and uh, hopefully quality by based and you know centered on persons fantastic thank you senor thank you for joining us for the podcast and for all your opinions and uh, ideas and uh, stories it's been a pleasure to talk to you as always and tell me about the same question to you what do you see oh i wish you know I wish to see more uh, more commitment actually and more people getting together working together uh, like you say transforming uh, the lives of the farmers because there are so many farmers there's so much potential and because they are small they they do have potential to work with also small roasters so one idea connecting roasters with with farmers is what I want, would like to see more one idea at this moment we have problems with the logistics as you know one of the ideas that I think we should do is to create pools of buyers in, and pools of sellers and, and have to share containers, you know, to, to bring five buyers in, in Norway, get together, and we have done it many times, and in fact we are doing it now with someone else, uh, and get together and bring the coffee together. Mm. So to create pools in order to uh, facilitate the moving of the coffee because moving coffee in 10 bags is complicated yeah. because you have to have a container and then you have to and then that's what is important to create in the consumer side uh, buyers of the same type of concept the same type of size they said okay we have to to start if we are going to buy colombia why don't create five companies get together and more or less discuss what we want to have in terms of the synchronization of the demand with the supply mm. And then we get a container together and we put it in the water. It's definitely possible to do. Uh, yeah, for sure. Cooperation between producers, cooperation between consumers. Consumers in, in, in many times, they say, Do you, are you going to commit exclusivity? That's the question that they ask always. And, and what I would say, listen, you know, there are no exclusivities in here. The exclusivity is you will build it up. Uh, so the thing that you have to do is to create a cooperation among roasters and they don't have to be afraid to use the same coffee Christian and Anne Coffee and Morgon buy the same coffee grower and, the and, the and they are in the same country not far away yeah. but each one has its own style and yeah. each one has its own roasting and his own clients and they are both doing well mm. so that is the good model I would say mm. Thank you, Alejandro. I think we should uh, finish now. Thank and, uh, you, Tim. I hope to see you many, many times more. Maybe we can record another podcast in the future, maybe on a farm. Of course. <laughs> of course, in La Reina de Sao or in Finca del Suelo. <laughs> Thank you.
thank you for listening to our podcast and uh, yeah it was a pleasure to talk to you it was indeed a pleasure for me too thank you thank you bye-bye <laughs>